Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Today's webinar is on the tax pitfalls to consider when buying and selling residential property. Our speakers today are Anne Bibby, our tax partner, and Joanne Wright, our agricultural and property partner. If you have any questions throughout the webinar, just pop them in the box at the bottom of your screen and we'll answer them at the end. We'll also be sending the slides and the recording round later today. So for now, I'll pass over to Anne. Thank you, Claire. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Anne Bibby and I'm a tax partner at Ellicott's. Today, we're going to give you an overview of the tax implications of buying and selling residential property in the UK. Now, despite initial fears that property probably wouldn't be transacted during COVID, especially as we'd all been in lockdown for a few months, we're actually now seeing more property transactions than ever, as people look to move out of the large cities and consider moving into more favourable, potentially rural locations. Now, a lot of this has probably been put down to working from home is now becoming the new normal for many people. But in addition to this, we do think that it's probably some of the tax incentives offered by the government to help kickstart the housing economy. So today, we're going to be looking at the tax implications of buying property, especially stamp duty land tax, tax implications of selling your main residence, how it can impact on investment property, then looking at more of the compliance reporting of the 30 day reporting rules, and also for anybody who's abroad and the non-resident landlord schemes. So we'll start with looking at the tax implications of buying a residential property. So the biggest tax cost is stamp duty land tax. However, due to COVID, the government introduced what was called a stamp duty land tax holiday, which means for purchases of residential property between July 2020 and March 2021, if the property costs 500,000 or less, there's actually no stamp duty land tax to pay, which is a great saving. However, if if that doesn't apply, we then need to look at some of the other stamp duty land tax savings. The first one being mixed use. This means that if you've got a flat above a shop, then potentially that's classed as mixed use and would qualify for the commercial rates of stamp duty land tax, which is a maximum of 5% in comparison to the residential rates of stamp duty land tax, which are up to 12%. So we've seen quite a few of these happening, especially on the sort of farms as well, where you've got the farmhouse and potentially um, sheep and things in field so that you can actually say that it's a commercial purpose to the property rather than a residential. There's lots of abuse on this relief because of the 7% saving. So we do need to look at it carefully, but it, it is a relief that we could look to maximise where possible. On the assumption that we have no stamp duty land tax holiday and we cannot get it into a mixed use facility, then potentially we can look at something else called multiple dwellings relief. And that sounds like a, a fantastic relief. Can you tell me more about the details to how that actually works? Yes, certainly, Joanne. Multiple dwellings relief is, as it says on the tin, basically, that if you're buying more than one dwelling at the same time, you divide the number of dwellings and to come to the purchase price per dwelling. Even if one dwelling is much bigger than the other one, you just simply divide it by the number of dwellings. And then you calculate the stamp duty land tax per dwelling based on the rates 
for the, the price of those dwellings. Uh, there is a catch that you have to pay a minimum of 1% on the total purchase price. So if you're taking the stamp duty land tax holiday example, if you had two properties worth a million pounds and you divide, so you divided it so they're worth half a million each, then potentially under the stamp duty land tax holiday, you wouldn't actually pay any stamp duty land tax. But if you're claiming the multiple dwellings relief, then you do actually have to pay at least 1%. So how would that work in practice then? If I had a client who was to purchase a house for say a million, which had a granny annex attached, what tax would they have to pay? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question because here's one that I prepared earlier. So just to give you an example of how this would work, as Joanne's just said, we've got a house and an annex and they're both worth a million pounds. So assuming on this example that we're no longer in the stamp duty land tax holiday, we would divide the million by two to give half a million pounds each. And then we look at the different rates, progressive rates of stamp duty land tax for residential property up to the half a million, which if we take each property in isolation would come to 15,000 pounds each. Then we, we add them together to give the total stamp duty land tax for the whole purchase, which would be 30,000. In comparison to if we didn't claim multiple dwellings relief, we'd be paying £43,750 because we would be using the progressive rates from naught to a million rather than from naught to half a million in each separate instance. If, you've, if anybody has bought residential property in the last couple of years, then potentially if it does, does have an annex and you didn't claim multiple dwellings relief, then we can make refund claims and uh, have been quite successful with HMRC in doing that. So we've looked at some of the reliefs to try and mitigate the stamp duty land tax. There is now a sting in the tail that if you don't qualify for any of those reliefs and potentially you're buying a second property, you could be caught by the additional rate SDLT, which actually increases any normal rates of SDLT by 3%. Currently, under the stamp duty land tax holiday, you would still be paying 3% under the half a million regime. There's no avoiding the 3% under the stamp duty land tax holiday. So when does the 3% apply? Sorry, when does it, doesn't it apply? It doesn't apply if you're replacing your main residence or if you're buying non-residential or mixed use property, that's another, reason for trying to get property into the mixed use category that I mentioned earlier, or if the consideration is less than 40,000, or if you're buying a caravan, houseboat or mobile home. So that seems quite simple, I would have thought. So what would happen then, Anne, if I had a couple who, before they met, each owned their own property, they got married, um, their husband then moved into the wife's house, uh, I mean, then rented his out. Um, they're now looking to sell the wife's house and purchase a house together, um, but still retain the husband as a rental. Could you talk through what the tax implications and how the stamp duty would be on that? Yes, sure. So there wouldn't actually be any additional rate of tax in this example, Joanne, because the husband and wife are treated as one unit and they are actually replacing their main residence. So in that instance, there wouldn't actually be any additional rate of stamp duty land tax, even though they still own one of the 
the rental properties. Well, that's good news. Um, and what would happen if they weren't married? Um, would things change then? Well, that's where you would think not, but actually, yes. If in the same situation that you'd got two people cohabiting, but they weren't actually married, and that one of them was selling their house, then unfortunately, they would be caught by the additional rate of SDLT. As in the example that uh, we've just put up on the screen, Mr. P, who is the cohabiting person, has no actual interest in the property that's being sold by Miss B. So he's technically not replacing his main residence, even though he actually was living in that residence with Miss B. In addition to that, he makes this position worse for Miss B because he actually taints the, the whole of the property. So if you're buying a property with someone else and one of those people falls foul of the additional rate SDLT, unfortunately, that means the whole property is subject to the additional rate of SDLT. Now, this can also happen where you may be living with your parents and you've decided that living with your parents is much nicer than actually living on your own and so you decide to buy a buy-to-let property and continue living with your parents. A few years later you decide that you actually want to buy your own property because when you move out of your parents residence you're not replacing your main residence and you already have an additional residence you again would be caught by the additional rate of stamp duty land tax. So stamp duty land tax is probably the main tax when you're buying residential property and it's something that you need to be mindful of because the rates can be quite substantial. Now we've got this simple tax out of the way, Joanne will talk about the tax implications of selling property. Thank you Anne. And as you mentioned, whilst a buyer needs to consider stamp duty land tax, the seller really needs to consider capital gains tax. So for an individual, the gain made on selling a residential property could be subject to capital gains tax at the rate of 28% rather than the rate of 20%, which you hear for other assets such as land and shares. The gain is calculated as being the difference between what you sell it for, less any selling costs such as estate agent fees, and what you purchase it for, which includes stamp duty land tax that you pay and any legal fees. But also, you can also deduct any capital improvements made during the ownership, such as a conservatory or upgrading of a kitchen. It's therefore very important that actually we keep detailed records of any capital improvements that be made, as this can help any tax that could be subject to once you, when you sell the property. You generally, however, won't need to pay any tax when you're selling your main residence, though. This is because we have a relief called Principal Private Residence Relief, known as PPR. This is an automatic election and one that you don't need to, to make through your tax return. Like all reliefs, though, there are certain conditions that need to be met to qualify. The legislation states that where the main purpose of acquisition is not to make a profit, um, and basically is to be your main home, um, the relief applies as long as, and there's a wording on the screen here, the dwelling house or part thereof has been the individual's only or main residence throughout the period of ownership. That sounds a great relief, Joanne. So how do we ensure that we meet the criteria for a dwelling? A dwelling house means not only the main building, but also includes any buildings adjoining to it, such as a garage or an outhouse or even a separate building occupied by members of the family or staff or by employees. It can also include gardens and grounds, provided the entire area inc included in the site of the house does not exceed half a hectare. 
However, HMRC can permit a larger area if they are satisfied that the whole area of the land is required for the reasonable enjoyment of the property. Okay, so does this apply to any house? For example, I've got a client who has a lovely 10 bedroom home with a separate coach house, pool house, pool, paddocks and ponies with seven hectares of land. Would all of this be covered by the dwelling relief? Potentially, it could be. It all depends on the nature and the size of the property. So first starting point is the half a hectare. Anything within half a hectare, HMRC will not question the usage of. Anything above that, we need to look at whether the land is appropriate to the size and the nature of the property. So if you have, as you say, a 10 bedroom mansion house um, like the one we've got here in this picture and on sort of the gardens, which you've described, is likely then those grounds would attract the principal private residence relief. Um, there has been an awful lot of case law on this, um, in which the courts have decided whether certain buildings and areas of land are within the meaning of taxpayers' principal private residence, or whether they're separate assets for capital gains tax. So, for example, um, in the case of Lonsons versus Baker, Dr. Lonsons claimed seven and a half hectares of land to house and graze his horses was required for the reasonable enjoyment of his house. Um, however, HMRC deemed actually he only needed one hectare was actually required and the rest was not deemed necessary and it was just desirable. So in this particular case, they upped it from half a hectare to one hectare. Um, whether or not a particular building is within the curtilage of the main house is a matter of fact and degree. The building must be geographically close to the main house and be an integral part of it. So if there is a wall of fence between the building, it is likely deemed that it is not within the same curtilage. Um, now, in the case of Beatty versus Wakefield, we had staff quarters consisting of a bungalow in which the caretaker lived, and this was held to be part of the dwelling house. However, in a very similar case uh, of Lewis versus Lady Rook, a gardener's cottage was held to be a separate residence, um, was not part of Lady Brooke's dwelling house due to the distance between the two properties. Um, so I've all I'd say, Anne, is on this situation, it really is by case-by-case -case basis, and it depends on the facts. Okay, that's interesting. So if we have a property that doesn't qualify for 100% relief. How do we calculate what the relief is? Um, the relief is calculated by dividing the gain made on the property by the total period of ownership and multiplying it by the periods of which you occupied it as your main resident. So I've got the formula up on the screen there. In this context, occupation means both actual physical occupation, but also there's a deemed occupation. Now, by deemed occupation, we mean periods which you have been physically absent from the property, but for principal private residence purposes, it is treated as if you were living there. So, for example, if you were um, to sell a property which increased by £100,000 in value since you bought it and sold it, um, and you owned it for 10 years, um, and each of those years you occupied it, either by actual or deemed occupation, the amount of relief claimable would be 80000 eight-tenths of 100000 leaving 20000 exposed potentially to 28% tax. Now, um, the period of ownership does not always necessarily start when you've legally purchased the property. So in a case of off-plan purchases, so when you buy it from a developer and it's not in existence at the time that you've actually signed the contract, the period of ownership for principal private residence relief will actually start when you physically are able to move into the property. Okay, so what happens if you buy a property but don't move in for a couple of years because it needs completely renovating? Um, well, that's very common um, in actual fact. If someone wants to acquire a house um, and then they want to renovate it, alter it before they move in, um, there is actually a special concession for this. Um, and this is that you can have 24 months uh, of deemed occupation um, if you are, can prove to HMRC that the reason why you didn't move into that property was because you are renovating it. Okay, that's a good relief. So are there any other periods 
where you don't actually live in the house but can still qualify for the relief? Uh, correct, yes. So as long as an individual has occupied the property as their home at some stage, uh, the last nine months of ownership is always treated as deemed occupation, regardless of whether you live in it or not. The only exception to this is if someone has to move out of the property into a care home. Um, and in that case, we've got a more generous relief of 36 months exemption. Now, the legislation is very clear as to what periods of absence can be deemed as occupation. Now, they, I've listed them on the screen there. So um, we got where an individual is abroad by reason of employment. And this is uh, you can move as long as you want um, and it's not a time limit. Um, where an individual is absent due to working elsewhere, even as employee or a self-employed trader. And here the um, limit is up to four years. Um, and then finally, we can have any period of absence for three years, as long as you proceed um, as long as it's both preceded and followed by a period of actual, actual physical uh, occupation. So there's quite a lot of uh, um, cases where actually, even if you're not physically in the property, you can still have it as deemed as being um, occupied and therefore you'll get the principal private residence uh, a relief um, on it. Excellent. So do I have to live in the property for a set period of time? Um, no, as strangely, there's no actual set period. Um, instead, HMRC will look at the individual facts and circumstances of each case. It may be possible for someone to return to their house just for a few weeks, but the important thing is that they must satisfy the HMRC for that short period of time was their main residence. So HMRC will look at the quality of the occupation rather than the time period. So they'll look at things like, have you updated your bank with your new address? Have you registered at your doctor's there? You know, what furniture have you bought? Did you intend this to be your main house? So as long as you can prove that actually this was always going to be intended to be your main house, if circumstances change and therefore you're only there for literally a matter of weeks, that is not a problem. Interesting. What about, I've got a client that uh, has the, the flat in London for working in the week and then also has a lovely cottage in the Cotswolds for their weekend living. So they're, they're living in both of them. Um, do they get relief on both? Um, if they're husband and wife, um, you only actually get uh, one um, a qualified main residence between them. Um, so it's not possible for actually for them both to elect to have a property each. Um, so but an unmarried couple could actually have one main residence and have the one in Devon as, as the husband's and the one in wife as, 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 the, um, as, as, as the, lady, the lady's the main residence. Um, now, you have to actually choose which is your, if you're married, you have to choose which is your main residence. Um, so the choice of which property is to be main residence is a very important one. Um, and you have a two year window of opportunity to notify HMRC as to which property you want the exemption to, be, to apply to. Um, now, the same applies if you if you personally own one residence. Um, typically, someone will elect for whichever the property is standing at the largest gain to be their main residence. Um, I don't know if you remember a few years back, we had the MP scandal where it highlighted that you don't necessarily need to be the one that you spend the majority of your time in. It just needs to be one that you do spend some time in. Um, now, if you have not made an election and you haven't written to HMRC and, and told them which of your main properties you want to be your main residence, HMRC will then determine which one is your main residence. Um, so in your example there, um, if they're spending the week in London, it's probably going to be the London property, which um, will be deemed by HMRC to be the main residence. Um, as a general rule, you can only have one main residence at a given time, um, although there are some exemptions uh, around the first 24 months of renovating and the last nine months where sometimes you can actually have two residents but by general rule it's only one one main residence at one time okay um and that's a nice wedding cake you've got on there joanne but uh what happens when a couple split up um potentially get divorced 
Um, well, if a couple separates um, in conditions which are actually going to be a permanent separation, um, they are then no longer deemed to have only one main residence between them. So for the person that ends up having to leave the matrimonial home, it will mean that that property is no longer their main residence. Um, if the house is then subsequently sold within the nine months of vacating the property, relief will still be available to cover the, the period between moving out and the date of disposal because we have that nine month exemption rule at the end. However, if it is more than nine months it takes to sell the property between one spouse moving out and the eventual disposal, a capital gains tax could arise on that person who has left the marital home. There is an exception to this, though, and this is if the um, if joined the divorce settlement um, in it's agreed that that property is left to the existing um, person residing there um, and certain conditions are met, then um, the, the, you might not have the capital gains tax arising on that. OK, that's interesting. So P principal private residence relief sounds amazing because it does seem to exempt the property from capital gains tax. But if you don't qualify for principal private residence relief, are there any other reliefs that people could look to claim? Um, there is actually a relief called lettings relief. So um, this is where it's available if you have met if you've actually let your main residence out during a period of absence. Um, however, principal private residence relief will always take priority over lettings relief. So when it comes to denotation, for example, the nine months rule will always trump any lettings. Now, lettings relief is calculated um, as on the screen there, the lower of the amount of principal private residence relief being available, uh, the lower of the gain arising whilst let, and the lower of 40,000. So there is additional claim there, which we could actually claim um, if the property has been let in a period whilst you were not occupying it. Okay. And then I'm sure we're all now familiar with the instructions from Boris to work, work from home if you can. With more people working from home, does this have any impact on this principal private residence relief? Potentially it can actually, it's something that people do need to be careful of. So where a property is used partly as a workplace and not only as a main home, it can be restricted. Now, the restriction relates only to part of a house which is exclusively used for the purposes of a trade or a business. So, for example, if you take your garage and you convert it into your office um, and you use it exclusively for the purpose of the business, that office could potentially be restricted, would, would not be able to qualify for principal private residence relief. Now, to avoid any restrictions, home workers must ensure that the rooms are used for business purposes are also used for domestic purposes. So HMRC will confirm, have confirmed that a room is used partly for business and partly for residential purposes will qualify for the full relief so as long as you've got um, your personal assets in there you use it for you know kids homework and things like that the office could then be um, deemed to be part of the house and the relief will then apply um, now they do say that not it, it has to be more than just minor personal use so if you had a hairdresser that converts her, cast, uh, her garage into a salon and starts trading from out of from there um, the garage will, even though she keeps a few sort of knickknacks and a couple of photos, things like that, that, that garage will still be included as being 100% business use and therefore it will be restricted. So it's just being very careful and making sure that all rooms that you are using for working from home is got a dual purpose. Thank you. So it sounds like capital gains tax plays a large part when selling property. Are there any other taxes that we need to be aware of? Um, the, probably the main ones to sort of uh, focus on actually is inheritance tax. Now, um, for inheritance tax purposes, if your total estate at the date of death is worth less than two million, in addition to your normal nil rate band of three hundred twenty-five thousand per person, you can also qualify for an additional allowance called a residential nil rate band, which is worth one hundred seventy-five thousand. Now, this additional allowance can be used against the value of your main home if it is left to a direct descendant on death. Um, 
But usually what happens in later life, people decide to move down to smaller, more manageable properties. Um, now, the government has actually recognised this um, and they've said that they're actually allowing you to preserve your residential nil rate band where someone's had to downsize to a less valuable residence or sold their main, main residence, maybe to go into a care home or something or live with a relative. Um, but as long as you leave assets of an equivalent value to direct descendants, the additional allowance of the 175,000 can be still claimed as a deduction against your state. Now, the other thing I just needed to want to just mention today, but I won't go into too much detail is, is when you hold a, a residential property within a company, there are things called ATED tax charges and P11D consequences to consider, but that's a whole drop in itself. But it's just be careful. If you are thinking about holding residential property in a, a limited company, you just need to be mindful that actually there are other tax traps that could be um, that you need to watch out for. Excellent. Now, I have spoken a lot today about release of available Anne. But um, I've heard that there's been a recent change uh, about the reporting of chargeable gains to HMRC. Um, would you kindly sort of uh, explain what those new obligations are? Yes, thank you. Yes, uh, I just wanted to cover some of the compliance implications from tax reporting. As Joanne said, from the, first, from the 6th of April 2020, there was a new 30-day reporting for UK resident individuals, trustees and personal representatives who sell UK property. Now, the rules have been in for non-UK resident people since 2015. And what this means is that where you sell a residential property based in the UK, now everyone has to report within 30 days to HMRC the sale of the property, um, unless you're covered by a relief. Now, the reliefs are the, all the nice CGT reliefs that Joanne has just talked about, principal private residence relief, lettings relief, or if you've got capital losses or the gain is within your annual exemption. So if there's definitely no tax to pay, then you don't have to file a tax return. However, if there is tax to pay, then you must file the tax return within 30 days and pay the, ta the notional tax within 30 days. You still need to report the capital gains tax on your self-assessment tax return each tax year, but they will have wanted you to make a payment on account based on what you anticipate the capital gains tax to be within 30 days of selling the property. Now, 30 days isn't a long time to do this reporting because it does need individuals as taxpayers to register on the government gateway and do certain activations for us as agents to even be able to report the gains for you. So it's something that a lot of people are falling foul of at the moment. And so I just wanted to bring to everyone's attention. HMRC will be issuing penalties and interest similarly to self-assessment for any late filing of tax returns and late payment of tax. There was due to COVID a holiday period where you didn't have to file them before the 31st of July, 2020. However, that's now ceased and people do need to file tax returns for selling residential property in the UK within a 30 day period. Um, Anne, you, you just mentioned there actually about non-resident landlords. Um, I've got a client who previously lived in the UK, uh, went abroad uh, and now rents out their UK property. Um, what would the tax implications of this be? Well, unfortunately, there's no way of escaping UK tax. 
So where you've got what we then call a non-resident landlord, they are supposed to pay, have tax deducted at source from their rental income unless they register under what's called a non-resident landlord scheme. And that's when HMRC will allow them to receive the income from the UK gross, but they will still need to report that each year on a self-assessment tax return to HMRC and potentially pay any income tax that's due on the rental income. Now, if they're a UK national, then they probably will have their personal allowances. So it could be that there's no actual tax liability, but unfortunately, there's still a reporting obligation. So in this instance, compliance is the key. Well, I think we've sort of given everyone an overview of the tax implications and the compliance requirements for owning UK property and potentially buying UK property. Do we have any questions? Thank you, Anne. We have quite a lot of questions, actually. So I'll just um, go through them now. Um, so the first one is, would you advise clients with just one buy to let to put it into a company so as to benefit from mortgage interest relief and to avoid the tax on the rental income? Um, I guess that would be depend on the level of the rental income because there are compliance costs associated with uh, having property in a company. The company has to file accounts each year, has to fill in um, confirmation statement and also has to fill in its own tax return. It would be paying corporation tax at currently 19% under current government uh, guidelines, but we're expecting corporation tax to increase sometime in the future to pay for COVID. So it would be a question of crunching the numbers really. Um, does a holiday home in Spain count as a second property for stamp duty? Unfortunately, yes, it does. It's any property anywhere in the world. Um, if I buy a farmhouse as part of an overall farm purchase, which will include farmland, woodlands and farm buildings, will the farmhouse still qualify for the stamp duty holiday? Um, it depends whether you fall into the mixed use category or not, which potentially a farmhouse, if it's an active farm, could be commercial rather than residential and um, the stamp duty holidays for residential. Okay. Uh, I think this was one for Joanne. Um, if I were to sell a derelict barn with planning permission to convert into a residential property, what rate of capital gains tax will apply? Um, well, on this one, whilst it's uh, still a derelict barn, um, and even if no planning permission is granted, um, it's not actually, um, you've not started the process of converting it, uh, you would actually pay the lower uh, capital gains tax rate of 20%. However, once you've actually started that conversion, um, then it will actually treat it, tip it into the 28% um, capital gains tax rate. So you just got to be careful, because I know some people start sort of building, um, converting the barns um, to prefer planning permission, but you might be taking it from a 20% um, tax rate band to a 20 percent tax rate ban so you just got to watch uh, at timings on it okay um i think this is another one for you joanne i own a house which i currently let out however under my tenancy agreement it states i must live in the farmhouse on the farm if i sell my house my private house will i be entitled to any relief yeah, actually, this is an interesting one, actually. Um, so there is actually an exemption called job-related accommodation. So if you have to live in your um, 
in the farmhouse because it is actually part of the deemed tenancy you can and you have another property you can actually elect for that property to be your main residence um now the, you, the, the there's a slight conditions you need to meet um, and one of them is that you need to intend to live in there if your tenancy came to an end so the fact that you are required to live somewhere does not prevent you from actually electing another property to be your main residence and be able to benefit from the principal pirate residence relief okay uh, one for Anne now i think uh, my daughter lives in London in rented accommodation. She is buying a house in a cheaper area to let. This will be her only owned property. Will she still be subject to income and capital gains tax on that property? She will definitely be subject to income tax on the rental income. Um, the capital gains tax position is something similar to what Joanne's just been talking about. It depends whether she can elect to have that property as a main residence but to be able to do that she would have to have it as a main residence at some point. Okay. Um, I've recently exchanged on a property but won't be completing for a few weeks. Do I have 30 days from the date of exchange or the date of completion to report my house to HMRC? It is actually the date of completion rather than exchange because as most of us are aware sometimes you can exchange months in advance so it would be harsh to be asked to pay tax on something that you haven't actually received the money for. Okay. I'm in the situation you just described, divorced with an ex living in the marital home and nine months period expired. What conditions are relevant to exempt me from capital gains tax? Um, well, it all depends part of the divorce settlement. So um, this might be, so if you want to might email me separately about that and I'll go through the conditions because they are quite detailed and they are quite sort of um, very careful as, as to what, make sure that we don't fall foul of them. But um, the, it, it all depends on how that divorce settlement is then actually arranged. Okay. So I can't answer that one straight away. Okay. Are Ellicott's able to provide advice for clients whose principal private residence is in Scotland, they've moved for work and retained an old home, which is now let in England. So yes, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, so moving to Scotland is fine. Um, you're, if, as long as your house is in England and you've got your principal private residence there, um, the fact that you've then moved to Scotland because of work, that's given you that deemed period of absence. Um, so uh, um, again, it might be one we just need to sort of touch or base exactly the conditions on that one um, offline. Okay. Um, my daughter bought a flat in North London and lived there for four years until she had an accident which made her commute to work impossible. She rented her flat out and lived in another rented flat. She's now living in Canada but due to return after three years. If she moves back into her flat for nine months would that entitle her to uh, prin pri principal private residence relief? Sorry can you run that one again? Sorry Claire. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, my daughter bought a flat in North London and she lived there for four years. She had an accident which made her commute to work impossible. So she rented out her flat and lived in another rented flat. She's now been living in Canada and due to return after three years. If she moves back into her old flat for nine months, would that entitle her to principal private residence relief? Yeah, so if she, so the fact that she moved out of her flat and then she um, was away for a period of absence for up to three years, as long as she moves back now before that three years expires, that deemed period of absence will, it basically doesn't exist. It's as it, 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 if you deem to occupy it. Um, and if she's, did she say she rented it as well in the meantime? Yeah. So you might have letters relief as well. Um, and that might be another one to work through the actual figures and numbers on um, just, to, just to actually clarify the exact position. Okay. 
Um, will COVID have an impact on deemed occupation? If you buy a property, but you can't move into it due to being trapped abroad, or you can't move abroad due to travel restrictions to take up employment? Well, at the moment, HMRC have been quite relaxed, actually, due to COVID uh, restrictions. Um, now, they haven't actually released any guidance on how that's going to impact on PPR. Um, so if you're in that situation, I think it will be a case of having to put that case to HMRC, explaining you know, these, these are outs factors outside of your control. Um, whether they accept it or not, we, we, we just don't know at the moment. But these sort of things, um, where, when anything related to COVID, to be fair to HMRC, they are being quite generous um, and are taking in sort of into account count that there are things which just you know people can't can't affect so um i think it's one of those ones where you try it and, and, and see okay great thank you that looks like all our questions for today thank you very much to Anne and joanne for talking us through um the presentation today we will be sending the slides and the recording around later so do look out for that um, but thank you for joining us and we hope to see you soon